Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast at Pariyadi.org. The audio recording that follows was from a talk given by Paul Fleischman at Tufts University on December 5, 2012. More information about Pariyati and the resources it offers will follow this talk. Dr. Paul Fleischman. Uh, Paul studied medicine and then went on to study psychiatry at Yale. Um, before taking up a private practice in Amherst with his wife Susan. They did their first course with S.N. Goenka in the 1970s, were later later appointed as teachers. Uh, Paul has written extensively about Vipassana and has given talks about Vipassana throughout the West and really around the world. So we're happy to have him with us tonight and look forward to his talk. Paul? So about uh, six years ago, I was at a conference on psychiatry and meditation. There were different psychiatrists on a panel. I was on this panel. And before the panel began, the person who was in charge of organizing the panel asked the different psychiatrists, well, we don't want to have just talking about meditation. We would like to have demonstration. We'd like to have live meditation. So please explain to me how long it will take you to teach your kind of meditation. So one person said, 10 minutes. Another person said, well, meditation is a little complicated. I need 20 minutes to teach it. And it got around to me, and I said, Ten days. <laughs> so I realized that I had somehow, through some bad karma, I'd worked myself into a situation where I was involved with the worst marketing strategy ever invented. <laughs> Dave Barry says that in order to promote something successfully, in the United States, you have to prove to your audience, you have to prove three things. First thing is, it improves your sex life. (laughs) Second thing is, it makes you wealthy. And the third thing is, it makes you lose weight. (laughs) Vipassana does none of those things. (laughs) So the question we'll look at for the next hour is why anybody would be so foolish as to spend 10 days going away from home, missing dinner every night, getting up at 4.30 in the morning, just to learn something that somebody else could have taught them in 10 or 20 minutes. I'm going to give a definition of what Vipassana is. The definition will be long, like a long sentence with many dependent clauses, maybe too much to absorb at first, and then over the course of the hour, we'll take apart each of these clauses and and lead to an understanding of why that's part of the definition of Vipassana. So Vipassana is a meditation that's taught for free. It's passed from person to person without any commercial interest or financial gain. And it's taught in 
10-day residential retreats that require a person to go alone. So even if you're, let's say you're a couple and both of you go to the same course, you're still going alone as an independent separate person, living in silence and uh, as yourself, just one person alone for 10 days. And the teaching focuses the mind on the awareness of one's own body based upon experiencing the body from within. So not looking at one's body, but experiencing, feeling the body from within on the basis of the sensations that the mind receives as signals from the body. Ordinary sensations, sensations like the fact that you're sitting in a chair or you're wearing shoes or you're wearing clothes and you feel hot or cold. And that this meditation begins with an affirmation that one wants to live a life guided by the five classic moral principles of not killing, stealing, lying, committing sexual misconduct, or using intoxicants. And that this meditation is intended to refocus a person towards a new way of life, called, could be called walking the path or way of life, that leads one to a focal awareness of the fact that all of one's body sensations are arising and passing away, that the body is impermanent, that the mind that observes the body is impermanent, that everything one feels is impermanent, that everything one sees or encounters in the world is impermanent. And this awareness of impermanence is the bedrock reality of existence. And it applies to one's own life, and it applies to everything in the world, including the world itself, everything we call the world, that means our planet, our sun, every star in the sky is impermanent. And that this awareness, in turn, should be experienced in the body and promote a cascade of other awarenesses that include the following the awareness that every living thing is impermanent and therefore needs to be dealt with as if it is essentially the same as oneself. Every living being is filled with a feeling of transiency and discomfort over loss of oneself, that is, fear of death, a sadness to leave the world, that that feeling which we have in us is found in every living being, that our lives should be marked by the awareness of our own impermanence and the impermanence of others by our own transiency and the transiency of others. And that this should, in turn, kindle a motivation towards an increasingly caring view of other living beings, an increasingly nonviolent attitude towards other living things. And that These should not be merely ideas or attitudes held in one's mind, but they should be experienced from within one's, you could say, one's viscera, one's gut. 
and that this entire experience and its realizations is transmitted from person to person for free, and that if one receives this experience and treasures it, one should or could well participate in cycling this awareness through the human community, also for free. That is to say, rotating this wheel of experience and values into the world. It takes 10 days to learn this because the experience of deep self-knowledge, deep self-observation, deep self-awareness requires a concentrated attention towards oneself in a manner that is new. It is not part of ordinary experience. Ordinarily, we are adaptive animals whose awareness is very properly focused upon organizing and manipulating the outside world. We're doing something. We're working. Even we're taking care of somebody else in a compassionate way. And then when we relax, we are also uh, organizing our attention to go outward into the world. So we relax by reading a book, watching a movie, talking to somebody else. Our awareness is, in general, externally oriented, and that's completely appropriate, but meditation is the opposite. Meditation is an internal awareness, focusing inward upon oneself, and not upon one's thoughts and feelings directly, but upon one's body sensations, one's basic biological, physical presence in this world. To make that change from an outward orientation to an inward orientation, of course that can be done in 10 minutes, it can even be done in 10 seconds, but for it to be systematic and to catalyze a deep realization or experience takes quite a bit of effort because the mind naturally and continuously is reorienting itself towards the outside world. So there's a a period of time that it takes to gain this new orientation. Another reason for the 10-day course is the experiences that come up are profound and catalytic, and you don't want to have a a 20-minute experience that's getting profounder and profounder and you say, well, forget it. 20 minutes are up, I want to go home. So you need to have time to have a deep experience to actually give that experience time to mature. And finally, for this to become significant enough that it becomes an anchoring way of life so that it's not just a transient experience but something that you can use and reproduce at home, that also takes time to learn. Excuse me. Another feature, so features of the, the, what I call the cascade of experience that moves from awareness of one's body sensations, a very apparently impersonal and neutral experience, into a cascade of deeply revelatory experiences, the nature of oneself, the nature of other lives, the nature of this world. 
that cascade also includes who's along to a stop at a feeling of devotion. Devotion to what? Vipassana meditation is a non-sectarian, non-religious meditation, just based upon observation of oneself. So to what is one devoted? There's a story that when the Buddha developed Vipassana meditation, he also developed a deep sense of devotion. And people said to him, this is just an ancient tale, people said to him, well, what can you be devoted to? You're the Buddha, you're the greatest being who ever lived. Who could you be devoted to? And he said, I'm devoted to the universal laws of nature, out from which I have sprung, out from which my consciousness has arisen. And therefore, it is the laws of nature to which I am devoted. And so, if one is meditating on one's body, the arising and passing of one's body, the existence of one's body, inside of the body are all the laws of the universe. Let's just take a few examples. We all consist of a famous chemical everybody knows about, DNA. It seems the only thing people are really interested in is crimes. So DNA is a very popular chemical because it's involved with crimes. DNA is a long strand of chemicals. It has a set of alphabetical-like letters. They consist of about 30 atoms each. The whole strand of DNA is about 3 billion letters long. And it's actually 3 billion times roughly 20 or 30 atoms in each of these letters. Billions of chemicals in this one strand of DNA. You have DNA in each one of your cells. You have trillions of cells. So you have billions of trillions of chemical alphabetic units in your body. Each one of those is held together by the electromagnetic chemical bonding by which atoms bond. The core of it all is electromagnetism. Same thing that's flowing through wires is holding your body together. The Buddha said, I am devoted to the laws of nature. And in the modern language we say, all the laws of the universe are present within our body. And for our body to exist, all the other things that exist have to exist. Another common example. We breathe in oxygen. The oxygen we breathe in, molecular oxygen, there's two forms of oxygen. Atomic oxygen, one atom of oxygen, is made inside of stars. But the oxygen we breathe is molecular oxygen. It's made inside of plants. We exist because plants exist. We actually are not independent, free-living entities. We are actually saprophytes, that is, creatures that live on other creatures. And the creatures that we're clinging to and we depend upon are plants. We are dependent upon plants. There's a myth in America, somebody says, I'm a self-made man. 
The only self-made man is a vegetable. (laughs) So, inside of us is every law of the universe. We are dependent upon the other living beings and also upon the non-living laws of the universe, like electromagnetism. It makes the chemistry of which we consist. And is a sense of sacredness or devotion as we get closer to the root of our being inside of our body, we see ourselves in connection to these other forces upon which we are dependent. Let's discuss a little how this meditation works at a personal level. So at a more impersonal level, it's just observation of sensations. Everybody's more or less the same. It leads to certain universal truths like impermanence, compassion, and devotion. But the individual experience of Vipassana is very unique. Everybody has their own very particular unique experience. And that's because as you start to meditate, first you're taught to begin to meditate with a very simplified form where you meditate on your breath going in and out. And next you meditate on the full meditation, all the sensations of your whole body, trying to experience your whole body all at once. As you're being taught that, you're not practicing that. The main thing you're doing is is daydreaming like mad. It's amazing, very amazing. I, I think of myself as a person with a good concentration. I can always read a book well, concentrate in school well. But when you meditate, you have no concentration at all. And I was amazed at how little concentration I had. And the reason is, usually we're concentrating upon an external stimulus. And the external stimuli that we concentrate on are those which are captivating. The book has meaning, so you read it and you enjoy it because that has meaning. But if it has no meaning, you throw it away. Say, I don't like this book. It doesn't hold my attention. When you meditate on the arising and passing of the sensations in your body, let's say there's a little itching in your body or there's heat in your body, there's all kinds of very subtle tingly, electric light, many, many, many forms of sensations in your body, they have no immediate meaning to you. And so your mind just drips off into internally generated self-referential dramas. There's 7 billion people on the planet and every minute, all 7 billion are involved with internally generated self-referential dramas. <laughs> and that's why the traffic in Boston is why the way it is. <laughs> so when you start to meditate, you're given directions that are very simple to understand, very hard to follow, and that lead to lots of daydreaming. The daydreaming, however, has actually two completely separate parts. One part of the daydreaming is that you're not really meditating, you're just daydreaming, and you're working on developing this new internally directed concentration. It's a new skill. You're not good at it. You have to keep practicing, practicing, bringing the mind back to a new stimulus. 
But some of the daydreaming has a very different meaning, and it's very important. It is not merely a distraction, or it does not merely mean that you're not meditating. Some of the daydreaming is occurring because you are meditating. Inside of your body, not just inside of your brain, inside of your entire body, head to toe, are memories and information. Example. People frequently say, well, I'm meditating. Here I am, day two, three, four of my first meditation course. I'm meditating. And 25 years ago, I was in an auto accident. And suddenly, I have pain in my ankle where I broke my ankle in the auto accident. So in your ankle, there is a memory. And if you move your mind systematically through your entire body, you stir up many memories, thoughts, feelings, daydreams, wishes, fears that are actually coded within your body. So two reasons that we usually do not turn our our mind inward into our body, one reason is we're busy managing the world, taking care of our life, earning a living. But another reason is inside of our body are a lot of things that are troubling to us. And it's more pleasant to rock to watch the Red Sox. So meditation, initially as you start it, contains an immediate paradox. You come to a meditation course, obviously, to feel peaceful, to feel relaxed, to feel calm and at ease with yourself. That's the obvious goal. And yet, as you start to meditate, you don't feel calm and peaceful. You feel your mind is less concentrated than normal because the stimulus you're trying to concentrate on is more difficult to concentrate on and you feel less at peace with yourself because memories and problems come on the surface of your mind every once in a while someone will come up during a meditation course and say am I getting worse I was a relatively calm person three days ago and now I feel not, I, you know, I feel agitated. Meditation doesn't appear to be working. Am I getting an F in meditation? <laughs> the answer is you're not at peace with yourself. You're not calm with yourself because you do contain worries, fears, distractions, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant attitudes. And meditation on sensations of the body brings that component to the surface of your mind. Another way of putting it is meditation is the skill of learning to be harmonious with yourself in spite of the fact of this turmoil that's going on inside of you. When you close your eyes and sit still, for some period of time, you will become aware that you contain inner turmoil. And meditation is the art of learning to reduce that turmoil by coming to terms with it, letting go of it, accepting it, seeing it from a new perspective. So, Meditation is not that easy to learn. If you learn it, 
for one minute, you can feel good for one minute, but that internal life has been unchanged. Even if you learn it for 10 days, you can't say that that internal life is entirely changed. So it's a lifetime practice of coming to terms with who you really are, of letting go of some of your inner turmoil, generating less of it, accepting what it stands for, creating a new way of life that is less generative of turmoil. Meditation is clearly not for everybody. Some people contain so much turmoil that it's paradoxical. It's like going to a gym. Everybody should exercise in theory. I hope everybody exercises one way or another. But sometimes some people should not perform certain exercises. Someone with a certain back problem shouldn't be lifting free weights. Someone with a certain orthopedic irregularity shouldn't be jogging. And so it is that not everybody should attend the meditation course. And the issue is how much of your inner turmoil will come to the surface and will you be able to use meditation as a new way of relating to yourself or will you simply be overwhelmed by this inner turmoil? Our our centers, our Vipassana centers, are set up to help people answer that question. Many people are insecure about that and there are answers that we can give. There's guidance we can give. A simple way of putting it is if in the past you've been so knocked off course by your emotional life, there's one should pause and consider whether meditation is right for you. If in the past your internal life has been variously calm and tumultuous, but nothing special has ever knocked you off course, then meditation is most likely to help you. Meditation is not a panacea. It does not work automatically without the various abilities of the various participants. It's like anything else. It's like learning to speak a language, play the piano. Different people will be more or less comfortable with this, more or less able to use it well. So it doesn't work like uh, putting a machine in a machine tool device and at the end something fixed comes out. For those reasons, one should be leery and cautious of any meditation that guarantees results, that exaggerates what kind of results are to be attained, or that promises unusual, unrealistic attainments to ordinary people. When I was growing up, I had a a great hero His name was Mickey Mantle. Is that name still widely known? Does everybody know him? Some of these players pass away. Those who didn't take steroids are a lot less interesting than those who did. Mickey Mantle never took steroids. And the thing about Mickey Mantle, of course, he was a great player in many ways, and he was also an extremely dignified sportsman. Mickey Mantle's uh, highest salary was $100,000 a year. 
and he never asked for more than 100000 for a specific reason, and that was that Joe DiMaggio had never gotten more than 100000 and Mantle thought it would be undignified of him to ask for more money than Joe DiMaggio got. How the world has changed. <laughs> anyway, one of the things about Mickey Mantle was that he could hit the ball out of the park. And I just looked up how many times he hit the ball out of the park and which parts he hit the ball out of, and I was going to reel that off to impress everybody here about Mickey Mantle. But the list was too long. I can't remember it. He hit the ball out of the park in Cleveland, Kansas City, in Brooklyn, which is a separate city from New York, in case some of you don't know that. (laughs) All over the country, he hit the ball out of the park. Though, of course, he never hit the ball out of Yankee Stadium, which could not be done by any living person. Now, this shows that even though I've meditated for so many years, my mind still deviates from the main thread of thought. And all of you came here to learn about meditation instead of learning about Mickey Mantle. The fact that Mickey Mantle could hit the ball out of the park does not mean that everybody who shows up at Yankee spring training can hit the ball out of the park. So when we go to a, a meditation course, we keep our sights on the goal of meditation, which is a life of unshakable equanimity. That's the promise and the goal of meditation, unshakable equanimity, a beautiful phrase. So one is equanimous, that means calm and peaceful. And it is unshakable. And the metaphor by which unshakable equanimity has swept the world as throughout every culture in the world, the metaphor by which this goal of human life is known is the statue of the Buddha who's made of stone and is sitting there with a facial expression of unshakable equanimity. But he's made of stone. We should try to hit the ball out of the park every time we step up to the plate, but most people will never hit the ball out of the park. And in fact, if they're pitching balls at 90 to 100 miles an hour, it's hard to hit the ball at all. So we shouldn't lower our goals. If you're playing baseball, you want to hit the ball out of the park. But we shouldn't expect meditation to turn us all into Mickey Mantle. There's two errors to be made in setting one's goal for a 10-day course. One error is setting one's goal with a self-depreciating attitude. Oh, I'm not good at this, or I've always had this mental problem, or I'm such a nervous person, or I don't know if I can do this. Meditation can help you change. It can move you towards increasingly improved equanimity across life, across the vicissitudes of what you face every day. So to start out with a negative self-perception is to limit oneself before trying. It's like getting up to bat and saying, I don't think I can hit the ball. On the other hand, the other mistake is to expect 
that you're going to play like Mickey Mantle. Now, when this talk was set up by some of my friends who are here today, they said it was going to be at the Fletcher School, and I should address myself to those people who are going to become diplomats and solve the problems of the world, and I should show them how meditation will help them solve the problems of the world. And uh, I said, that cannot be done. But I do want to address myself to the question of after we meditate, if we become meditators, if we're moving towards unshakable equanimity with shakable equanimity, that is to say, in our daily life, we encounter things that still shake us up, we're still not perfectly happy, we're still not perfectly calm, but through learning a practice that raises to the surface of our mind sensations of our mind and body, we confront those continuously, systematically, regularly in a practice of meditation during a meditation course. Then we take that home and practice it every morning, every evening. And our life begins to move upward in calm, in peace, in compassion, in reverence for the living things of this world, in reverence for this whole universe, even with its unliving things. And this is the direction of our life. If we're moving in that way, it's still quite self-absorbed. It's us. It's our drama. And we feel our drama has improved. That's a good thing, of course, but it's a limited thing. So what about the intersection between the improvement of our personal drama and our ability to help improve the drama of the world? There's a great misperception about the teaching of the Buddha. Several misperceptions. One is the one misperception is that the Buddha taught Buddhism. He did not. There is no such thing as Buddhism in the teaching of the Buddha. The actual English language word Buddhism was coined only about 300 years ago as the British were uh, entering India and studying its religions. So the Buddha taught Vipassana meditation and the way of life that goes along with it. It was not ever intended to be a religion. And whether Buddhism is one of the world religions or not, Vipassana is not a religion, and it's not a world religion at all. It's a, you could say a psychology, you could say an ethical training, you could say it's a way of life. It's a self-knowledge, it's a skill, but it's, it's not a religion. Another misperception of the teaching of the Buddha is that it is pacifism. I saw a movie quite a few years ago in which some Buddhist monk says something like, um, our enemies are our friends and we always learn great lessons from the things our enemies teach us. That Buddha never said anything quite that pathetic. <laughs> the world is a difficult and violent place. No one can honestly say such a thing when you hear about, for example, that there's a culture of rape in the Congo. So that was on the front page of the New York Times two or three days ago. A culture, a systematic culture. So how can you say, I'm thankful for what my enemies teach me? 
in the same way the Middle East, uh, when I was a child in elementary school, the Middle East was in turmoil. And now I'm long retired and the Middle East is still in turmoil. The teaching of the Buddha was that for people who are on the path of making themselves vessels of equanimity, peace, and harmony, they themselves must be witnesses to a path of nonviolence and should not kill or harm any other living being. We recommend, it's just a recommendation, it's not an obligation, that people who are meditators try not to kill anything. When we have a spider in our house, we pick it up and carry it outside. That's a personal cultivation of a value system, of an attitude, of a way of life. It's not something that we're going around lecturing at everybody else. Vipassana doesn't make you a pacifist. It makes you a person who, based upon calm and non-self-referential thinking, seeks the good in all interactions. But the good in all interactions is not patently clear. The Buddha said, There were two kings in India. India, at the time of the Buddha, was a highly um, non-unified place. It wasn't a country at all. There were democracies at that time. There were kingdoms at that time, but the kingdoms were bigger, and eventually India became only kingdoms. The democracies were eliminated. There were two kings in India at the time of the Buddha who were followers of the Buddha, One of them at one point went to the Buddha and said, well, I really want to be a practitioner of Vipassana meditation, and I'm a king, and so I've got a problem. I don't want to harm any living beings, but I'm a king, and I have certain responsibilities. And the Buddha said, if you want to be a meditator, you cannot be a king. And if you want to be a king, you cannot live the full life of meditation, though, of course, you can meditate. A king is responsible, according to the Buddha, for protecting his people and also, amazingly enough, get prepared for shock, a king is responsible for capital punishment, which the Buddha never criticized. I'm not promoting any of these things. I'm not criticizing any of these things. I'm pointing to the fact that being a meditator does not make you any kind of ideologue at all. Not one kind, not another not a liberal, not a conservative, not a pacifist, not a warmonger. What Vipassana does is make you a thoughtful, self-referential, aware, intelligent person who takes self-knowledge and turns it out into the community of the world in a format that's appropriate to you, your personal situation, your experience as a meditator, your personal value system. So we should not misconstrue meditation as turning people into one political ideology or another. There's a famous uh, discourse in the, in the uh, Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is, Canon means canonized, collected, and uh, uh, admired collection of work. 
So in the canon of the Pali language, Pali being the ancient language uh, in which the Buddha's teaching was preserved, in that collection of teachings which preserves the Buddha's word, there's a famous sutta, the Maha Parinibbana Suttana, which means this, the last teaching of the Buddha before his Parinibbana, that means when he died. And in that teaching, there's a collection of, there's a democratic state, one of the small democratic states. And they said to the Buddha, how should we defend ourselves against these kingdoms that are bigger and stronger? And the advice the Buddha gave was, assemble regularly. Speak honestly and openly. Create a sense of union that includes the discourse of discord. That is the best way to preserve yourself. And he gave this, I wrote this down, his exact teaching on how to participate in a collective dialogue. He said, a person who's skillful in my teaching, in the teaching of Vipassana practice, in collective conversation should um, should speak out openly in an assembly, be unruffled by other people's questions, should listen to others, should encourage others to listen, should learn from other people, and shouldn't cause trouble. Fletcher School of Diplomacy. <laughs> Let's go on to why Vipassana is so successful. We started with its overly long courses. We then went to its bad marketing strategy. We then discussed that it was difficult. We then discussed that, paradoxically, during a meditation course, you can feel more turmoil rather than less. Why is it so successful? It is very successful. In the second half of the 20th century, it went from being a completely obscure thing that no one had ever heard of to being practiced by approximately a million people. We think there's about 90 to 100,000 people taking 10-day Vipassana courses every year. And over the years... 90,000 at 10 years would be a million. It's more than 10 years, but people take more than one course, so you get to about a million people. One thing is, as I've already mentioned, it's non-sectarian. It's not a religion. It fits the modern temper. It's a learning experience where one carries home deeper self-knowledge without particular reference to a hierarchy an authority. A second thing, which I've mentioned, is it, it seems very uh, suitable, very uh, easily integratable with the modern scientific worldview. The idea of oneself in the, in the Vipassana experiences, oneself is a collection of various things, atoms, molecules, you could say DNA, you could say complex macromolecules. This collection of things coheres due to the laws of chemistry, like electromagnetism, due to the laws of biology, like the evolution 
of complex adaptive organic species like a human being. We cohere for a period of time, and then due to the law of entropy, we decohere, that is, we disappear. So the, the modern scientific worldview and the worldview that we experience in Vipassana are either synchronous or easy to relate to each other. So it's a non-sectarian teaching that fits the modern temper and fits the scientific worldview. We did mention that, I did mention that Vipassana also includes, unlike some forms of non-sectarianism, there's a feeling of reverence or devotion within Vipassana. So on the one hand, it's not a religion. There's no particular feeling about God. If you believe in God, it's not a problem. If you don't believe in God, it's not a problem. God is simply not involved. It's a meditation. But there is a feeling of reverence, and the feeling of reverence is to the fact that we exist in a world out from which we spring. The Buddha was called, his nickname or the name he's used, referred to mostly in the ancient texts, is the Tathagata, which a funny word which means emerged out of the universe, goes back into the universe. And in that sense, we're all the Tathagata. So there's a sense of reverence for the universe or the sense of reverence for life, all lives, including one's own life. Woody Allen said in Sleeper, he said, the entire universe is pervaded by a higher consciousness except for some parts of New Jersey. (laughs) You know, when you give a talk at a medical conference, you have to sign a disclaimer. It says, like, are you sponsored by a drug company? So some of what you're saying, like if you say... Prozac is good for depression. Maybe you're being paid by Eli Lilly to say that, so you have to sign a disclaimer. So before this talk, I should have assigned a disclaimer acknowledging that I come from New Jersey. (laughs) So there could be there's some higher consciousness I'm unaware of due to my location. I think another important feature of Vipassana's success is or should be an honest statement of attainments and goals. So we discussed it's not necessarily for everybody. People can decide for themselves. They can get help from our centers helping them decide whether it's good for them. Most people make progress. Very, very few people take a course and don't feel that it's been a great experience, but most people don't hit the ball out of the park, don't become either Mickey Mantle or the Buddha. Most people make progress that continues over the course of a lifetime. So the claims are realistic to the achievements. Vipassana is not repressive and not avoidant. That's a very important point. Many people hear about Vipassana and they hear, well, you're just observing yourself. You're observing yourself neutrally. You're not trying to make an evaluation or a judgment. You're just aware of what's going on inside your body and your mind, and you're just observing. That's the whole technique, self-observation without judgment. And people feel, well, if you don't judge yourself, like even last night somebody was asking me, uh, well, if you don't judge yourself, doesn't that make you amoral? After all, we do have 
our nasty side. Everybody does. So if you're not judging yourself and you just learn to accept yourself, then would that make you an amoral person? But Vipassana is self-observation. So as one is sitting there meditating, whether we're talking about the 10-day course in which you're learning to meditate, or whether we're talking about every morning and evening in the privacy of your home, you're meditating and you're doing the same thing, just observing yourself. And you're observing yourself as you really are. And you're observing yourself using your body, that is your biological animal life, as the source of your meditation. You're not observing a mental meditation. You're not saying uh, saying to yourself. You're not convincing yourself. You're not talking to yourself. Just observing yourself as an animal, as a being. All of you are rises to the surface. You make a choice from that menu of how you want to live. Since Vipassana makes you aware of the choices that you're making, it makes you aware of the consequences of the choices you're making. Those of you who are in a 12-step program or those of you who help others who are in a 12-step program, you know that one of the key differences between the addicted life and the sober life is the awareness of consequences. The person who needs help from a 12-step program always is a person who rationalizes away the probable consequences of their action. I'm going to drink tonight, but my wife won't notice. I'm going to gamble tonight, but this time I'm going to win. So addiction consists of making improbable consequence statements against the laws of probability. The real statement should be, if I drink tonight, my wife will notice and be angry again. If I go gambling, the odds are high that the house will win and I will lose. Vipassana makes you aware of your choices as you're making them. If you meditate in a daily manner, you become aware of the choice you're making and you're aware of the ground from which you're making it. In a profounder sense than mere substances, it leads to a sober life. It also leads to an awakened, conscious, or choiceful life. Once again, I find this fits the modern temper. It's a heightened sense of self-responsibility. There's an irony or a tension. On the one hand, we become aware that we are entirely dependent upon the outside world. For example, the laws of physics and chemistry and electromagnetism, or the plants who make oxygen that we breathe. On the other hand, we become increasingly autonomous and independent creatures who are aware of the basis of our choices, the probable consequences of our choices, and how we shape so much of our own life by the choices we make. That's why we recommend meditating every morning and every evening. I gave a talk in Germany, and there was a scary moment. The Germans uh, are very astute academics. And I used the word, I made the mistake of using the word uh, wisdom. I said, you can live by wisdom. So in the question time, here comes a question. It's like, 
Nobody can define wisdom. How dare you use this word? What do you mean by wisdom? Okay, in Vipassana, there's a simple sense of wisdom. Wisdom is the movement of life towards unshakable equanimity based upon a purification of the mind that removes one's own tendency or lessens one's own tendency towards fear, hatred, or self-delusion. Another feature of Vipassana that um, I think is ironically modern, most modern people feel lonely. We've lost that community cohesion, which used to mark life. I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm glad for that. That community cohesion is also oppressive. Community cohesion is cozy. It's also another way of saying other people have the right to tell you how to dress, what religion to believe in, how to behave, how to conduct yourself. So our lives are increasingly autonomous, which is compatible to most of us, but they're also lonelier. Vipassana produces a loose, networked kinship community. I talked about kinship with plants. Of course, there's kinship with people. Vipassana is passed on for free. That means if you get it, you got it from someone who gave it to you. It always comes to you as a gift. Gift giving is fun. It's always Christmas at a Vipassana place. <laughs> You're always in debt. Not a negative debt, like an onerous debt, but like someone just gave you chocolate and you're thinking what you should give back. So you get this thing for free. The fact that you haven't paid for it is a critical part of the technique. It's not a socialist part of the technique. It's a critical part. That means you feel immediately on the receipt of this meditation that it's come to you from somebody else and you want to participate in rotating that wheel and passing it on. It's a very ancient value, and it's a very modern value. <clears throat> it's true that most people who take meditation courses find it difficult to stick with the technique. So let's look at why. There are two things that pull us away from a life of meditation. One is ignorance, and one is craving. Those are the only two things that pull us away. People say, I get pulled away from my meditation because I don't have time, or I wanted to watch TV, or my work requires me to work at night, or I have my work, and I have my kids, and then I'm tired and I fall asleep, so I don't have time to meditate. All of those are manifestations of one of two things, ignorance or craving. Ignorance means we're unaware of how we are setting up our own life to defeat ourselves. Wisdom, which I defined, gave my simple, non-academic definition of wisdom. Wisdom is increasing the clarity of one's mind to be less filled with fear, hatred, and other negative states, and to be more positive. So one can orchestrate one's life to set this up as a daily value. One is in charge of one's own life, even if you're very busy. It's not really credible that you have no time. 
you may have less time. And craving. Craving is the second thing that draws us away from meditation. So craving means we're drawn to do something that afterwards we feel would not have been as valuable as if we meditated. Stereotypes of craving I used were gambling and alcohol, but uh, much subtler forms of craving, most specifically the boob tube, the most uh, intelligence-reducing mechanism we've invented, the craving to reduce one's awareness, one's choice, one's capacity for self-determination, and the passive receipt of flickering lights Someone said, all of modern life now consists of staring at an illuminated rectangle. (laughs) So to live the life of meditation, take a meditation course, it's hard, but the easy part of it is it's structured for you, and you join it, and you can participate. To live the life of meditation, you have to overcome the seduction of illuminated rectangles. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine just about uh, two months ago, and it showed a preschool teacher, or someone who looks like our stereotype of a preschool teacher, and she's got a young couple sitting next to her at the table. So apparently young parents bringing their child to school, the child is not shown. And the preschool teacher is saying to these nervous but eager parents, she says, we have observed that giving just a teensy-weensy electric shock (laughs) at just the right moment greatly increases their scores on standardized tests (laughs) and gets them into more competitive schools. So I would like to say that Vipassana is a teensy-weensy electric shock. (laughs) It wakes you up. It makes you more aware of who you are and more aware of the beauty and gratitude that surrounds you. And it gives you a very usable, reproducible, self-utilizable method of being more awake and more competitive in the test of life every day. So, for those of you who are wondering whether you should become meditators, for those of you who are but are sometimes struggling to keep it central to your life, you can ask yourself, what if it were true that every day you got up and meditated and every evening you found some time to meditate, that your life was constantly being giving a teensy electric shock in the direction of more calm, more compassionate, more appreciative, more self-aware, more sensitively attuned. And that along with this meditative part of the life, there were also these moral positions by which one could keep oneself on track in life, sobriety, integrity, right speech, speaking honestly, 
and that one belonged to a community of people like this, not an oppressive community, not a community to which one ever pays any dues, not a community that has any membership card, but a community of people you see at one meditation course or you meditate with at uh, once a week at their house or at your house. And if this were your orienting way of life, how would you feel about your life? And is this the direction in which you'd like your life to head? There was a famous writer about Buddhism, Trevor Ling. He died about 20 years ago. He was an Englishman who was born about 1920, and he was born into a religious Baptist family and became a Baptist minister. But during the Second World War, he was a British soldier and was sent to India and came in contact with Buddhism and other Indian religions. He was very smart, and he became a Sanskrit and Pali scholar and became a professor of Indian religion and was a famous academic in England for many years. For many years, he remained a Christian Baptist minister. Then he decided, well, there's something not quite right about being a Baptist minister and teaching Indian religion. So he changed to being an Anglican minister. He felt that was a little more (laughs) open-minded. Then after some period of time, he abandoned that. He died quite a few years ago, but his wife is still alive, and I've corresponded with her. And I said, you know, well, what was the story? What was his real religion? She said, well, I asked him towards the end of his life, what is your religion? And he said, well, um, just say I'm a Buddhistic sort of person. But then he went back to her and he said, no, 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 don't say that. Just say I'm a human being. So we can close by saying Vipassana is a meditation for human beings. Let's close and we can have questions. Are we ready? We're ready. You said before that Vipassana was not right for people with too much turmoil in their past. How do you feel about the work that has been done with Vipassana in prisons? Great question. Uh, The person who wrote this maybe saw the movie Dhamma Brothers. It's a great movie about Vipassana in prison. Well, the difference there is that those people are in prison. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of a safety factor a very strong safety factor. like And the Dhamma brothers, the people, all those people were lifers. So if they get a little upset, there's, they're not going to drive badly in traffic, for example. So it's a great project. The, the prison project is a great project. It's done with extreme care and caution. That's not always available in daily life. And it does show that people who have had enormous amounts of turmoil can do apostasy. Not to make a joke out of it, they are in prison, and so there's a different safety factor involved. I have an interest in studying mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. How interrelated is MBCT to Vipassana? And do you believe Vipassana is more effective at achieving human equanimity than mindfulness relaxation in the style of Thich Nhat Hanh? So these are related questions. So there are many kinds of meditation, and uh, we hope, I I would say, I hope every 
asana meditator, hope, I hope every meditator in any other tradition hopes, that we're not in a competition. I mean, Vipassana is taught for free. We get paid the same amount if you show up or if you don't show up. All people who meditate should be, I think, thinking of themselves as doing, as in the same team or in the same direction rather than competing or comparing. For example, do you feel Vipassana is more effective at achieving human equanimity than mindful meditation in the style of Thich Nhat Hanh? How would you know? How would you do the comparative study? Why would you do the comparative study? So why would you want to set yourself up to compete with other people who are following their, their sense of what's beautiful and meaningful? It's not a competition. And then I have an interest in studying mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. How interrelated is MBCT to Vipassana? Well, I, I would say um, the image I use is sports. So if, if one person, for example, is a baseball player and one person is a soccer player, I can't imagine that the, the soccer player is walking around saying baseball players are no good, they should all be soccer players or vice versa. So I think athletes generally respect each other's sport. But then to say, well, since I respect each other's sport, I'm going to show up to a soccer game with my baseball bat and I'm going to be hitting the ball using a bat, well, you have to keep the sport separate. So what we feel is every meditation has its value. There's no competition. All, almost all people are meditating or meditating to make themselves into better citizens of a better world. But the different forms of meditation are different. We require some specificity to what we're doing. The more carefully and accurately you learn what you're doing, the better you can do what you're doing. And therefore, we don't tend to look upon all meditations as plain vanilla. They're not all the same thing. Each one is slightly different. So um, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is a therapy that's designed to help certain kinds of people in certain kinds of way. It has a specific training technique, I assume, that uh, teaches the therapist how to do that. And that's something probably related to but not the same thing as Vipassana, which is learned in 10-day courses and is not aimed as a therapy. So soccer and baseball are two good sports. You can't play them both on the same field. What is the best way to become involved in an actual 10-day course? How often are courses offered? There's a, something like 120 Vipassana centers in the world. A great many of them are in India, but uh, Indian-related countries, Sri Lanka and Nepal. But the United States has a, a handful, and Canada has a handful, so in North America there's several. So let's say there's a dozen or more. And there will be information out and back. There's one central website. You can log into every meditation center in the world, find out, for example, if you have Easter vacation, April 10th through 20th, you can find out where a course is. All the courses in all the centers in North America are always full. So if you actually want to take a course, you have to know ahead of time, sign up ahead of time, you sign, up, sign up online. So the best way to get involved is to just find the website and look for a center and a course that fits your schedule. Integrate 
Vipassana into our real lives, question mark. There's no subject. I'm real. So, um, if you meditate every day, if you meditate twice a day, if you live by these moral positionings, I don't call them moral vows, which is to me is silly, but the moral position and attitude you take. And if you live that way, whoever you are and whatever you're doing, whether you're a bus driver, a housewife, a doctor, there's not an answer. But there's your answer. With the clarity you get, with the calm you get, whatever degree of calm you get, you don't get perfect calm. That immediately becomes integrated into your real life. There's nothing more realistic or practical than learning to calm yourself down, see yourself more clearly, and relate to people around you with more awareness of who they are and your interconnection to them. So it's intrinsically realistic, I would say. Oh. Aha. Very long. Goenka recommends two hours a day, so Goenka is the head teacher of the Vipassana tradition. It is true that we make time for what we value, but many don't have 14 hours a week, of course. Is 10 minutes a.m. and p.m. valuable, or one hour a week? How can we be flexible? So... Um, that's an excellent question. So if two hours is what's recommended, and, and many people say they can't find that, is 10 minutes valuable? And the question, the answer is one minute is valuable. It's not as valuable as 10 minutes. <coughs> is there a linear progression? Like you could draw a graph, and a linear graph, the more time, the better. No. How much time is the right amount of time? Well, an hour is a ballpark figure. It's only a recommendation. If you meditated twice a day for 10 minutes, I should imagine that would be somewhat helpful. What we feel is that, generally speaking, people who are tenacious enough to stick with meditation for a period of time find a positive spiral, like the opposite of a vicious cycle, in which your meditation feels fruitful to you, so you want to pursue it. So you pursue it. So it becomes more fruitful to you. So you pursue it. I had an experience recommending someone was starting a very um, high-powered graduate education and they were talking to me about meditation and they were a committed meditator meditating two hours a day before they started graduate school so I said to them well I don't know if it's realistic like get realistic I don't know if it's realistic that a a graduate student can meditate two hours a day I kind of undermined my own you see the bad marketing strategies that are <laughs> I kind of undermine my own position. Well, we should be modest. Later on, I met this graduate student. I said, how are you doing? They were doing fine. And are you meditating twice a day? Yes. How much? Two hours a day. You're kidding. How do you have time?
to meditate two hours a day in graduate school. And the person turned the question around on me and said, how could I not meditate two hours a day? It makes me so much more efficient. I don't think I could cope with graduate school. It's such a burnout without meditating two hours a day. So two hours a day is not unrealistic. But if you can't do two hours a day, you don't want to take the attitude, well, I can't do two hours a day, so I'll do nothing. Ha, ha, ha. And instead, you want to take the attitude, do what you can, get some benefits out of it. When you get some benefits, you'll be convinced that you'll do a little more. And there's no, the actual timing should not be an obsession, but the understanding should be a, a uh, firm morning and evening practice will be gratifying to the meditator who will feel anchored twice a day in greater equanimity and clarity. I have an old back injury that makes sitting difficult and painful over time. Can I participate in Vipassana? I also fall asleep most, if not every time I sit quietly for 15 minutes or so. Um, well, I'll do them each separately. They're both medical questions. Um, uh, actually, this is two questions. So the back injury, well, it will depend. And the best way to proceed with that would be to go to the online site where our centers are listed, get an application, and write the details of your bad back on the application and let the teacher of that course help you evaluate it's not necessary to sit cross-legged on the floor. And uh, it's not necessary to sit still like a Buddha. But it is necessary to participate in a many, many hours a day meditation practice, some of which can be done lying on your back, some of which can be done walking, but a lot of which does have to be done sitting. Not sitting perfectly still, but sitting still and some small bit of which has to be done sitting perfectly still. So the day has a, a varying schedule of intensities. So you're led every day through a more intense part of meditation, less intense, more self-motivated, more class-like. And depending on how bad that back injury is, you may find it quite possible for you to participate. Certainly every course has several people who've had back injuries, which are very common but it's conceivable that you might not be able to participate. So you'd want to get the details out to the teacher of the course and let you and the teacher dialogue about how uh, much of an impediment that would be. I fall asleep most, if not every time, I sit quietly for 15 minutes or so. That's very interesting. Um, <laughs> when Susan and I were uh, starting many, many years ago. Um, Mr. Goenka used to teach the courses himself. Eventually, of course, it's 120 centers, so you can't teach at 120 centers at the same time. So videos were made, and the course are taught by video. But he had an assistant teacher who was a French woman, and um, I, I didn't really realize this at the time, but there were people in the planet who were 60 years old. That was shocking to me. And the 60-year-old woman was actually an, an assistant teacher of meditation. She was de would demonstrate meditation, and then she would gradually, during the meditation <laughs> sitting, she would fall asleep. 
So at that time, I was a little disconcerted by this. I felt like, well, the teacher should set a better example. <laughs> but then I felt, well, she's 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to tell you my age. <laughs> Actually, it's true that as you get older, you fall asleep more easily. But, you know, there are studies of America... Almost all Americans are sleep-deprived. So there's a standard. Sleep deprivation is measured by your speed of going into rapid eye movement sleep and an experimental setup where you have an EEG on your head. You fall asleep, and they see how long it takes you to hit REM sleep. And almost all Americans are sleep-deprived. So uh, if you sleep more, really sleep more, you won't sleep as much when you're trying to meditate The meditation course does begin very early in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. Most people think it leads to sleep deprivation. But there is a two-hour lunch. If you actually eat that slowly, you'll be sleep deprived. But if, like most people, you eat in 15, 20, 25 minutes, you have an hour and a half after lunch with nothing to do but sleep. So you should get adequate and proper sleep. And if you do get adequate and proper sleep, you won't fall asleep when you meditate. My daughter is suffering from juvenile arthritis. She's 29 years old. She is taking, uh, it looks like a name of medication, and methotrexate medication. Can Vipassana help her? Well, uh, we don't recommend Vipassana as a medical or psychiatric treatment. It's not a treatment. It's a way of life. It's a path. It it's, helps you be your more authentic self, be calmer, be more peaceful, be more generous. So it's not a cure or a treatment for any illness. So um, it may help the person more than it will help the disease. Whether a person has a disease or not, they're still a person, and they still may need and benefit from the help. Whether a person with this illness can do that much sitting still would depend. It's like the, the person with the bad back, so you, that person person with a medical question can write to the center, say, these are my problems. This is the course I'd like to take. Can I take it? And there'll be someone who will write back and help you evaluate. And the medications, to me, don't seem like they'd be a problem at all. Of course, you can take medication. How do you reconcile the concept of reincarnation with the modern scientific worldview? Very good. Sounds like maybe a meditator asking this question. Um, actually, there, there's a number of complications in this question, so I'm thinking about the best way to answer it. Um, the Buddha actually did not believe in or teach reincarnation, so the question has a, a slight um, complexity in it. Let's say the traditional Indian view, which is present in the Buddha's teaching, that one takes life after life after life, The way I personally understand that is uh, that um, everything that is is going on in this uh, thing here called me, everything is, is emerging out of these 100 trillion strands of 3 billion long alphabetical letters. So the size of the information system in me still beats Google. 
but were printed out of a very, very long, complex memory of what happened before. And all that memory came into me at the moment I was born. And it came from somebody else. And they got it from somebody else. My immune system was designed by fish. So was yours. Fish are the people who invented immunity, other kind that we have. So the, the, the modern immune system is approximately three, four hundred billion, uh, hundred, three, four hundred million years old and evolved at the time of fish. So uh, fabricated reincarnation stories like asking me where I put my car keys 2,000 years ago, <laughs> I don't believe in that. But if you're asking about the continuity of life, and if, you're, if medic, uh, reincarnation is your way of discussing the continuity of life, it's a very, very important thing for us to realize, appreciate, and revere. Last question. Could you please elaborate on the Western scientific idea of memories stored in your body vis-a-vis Sankaras? So this is somebody who's taking a meditation course. Sankara is a Pali word. It means reaction pattern. So memories or reaction patterns are stored in your body. And could I elaborate on the modern view of this? So I would say... um, Actually, one of the nicest features of the last 20 or 30 years in Western science has been the demise of dualism and the restoration of, say, biological monism. So that means there used to be thinking, even when I was in medical school, there's a soul and a body, they're different. I, don't, I can't imagine there's anybody left on planet Earth who believes in that. Every doctor in the world now believes mind and body are a single entity. The mind exists in the substrate of the body, so the fact that our bodies exist leads to our mind existing. And memory is stored not just in the brain. Of course, memory is stored in the brain, but not just in the brain, but in the entire system because it's one integrated system. So, take a simple example. If you get a hormone disease, you get thyrotoxicosis, too much thyroid, or hypothyroidism, too little thyroid, it changes your mind. And you, you feel agitated or you feel sluggish. Another example, somebody sticks a pin in your toenail, changes your thought pattern. You say, get that pin out of my toenail. So your mind is connected to your toenail. So the memories that we experience are stored in our body. Another example, a very unpleasant example, was brought home to me when I started being a psychiatrist. The Vietnam War was still active. Vets would come home. They'd be traumatized. They'd be terrified, even though they're sitting in some nice, safe place. And if you said, well, the mind is separate from the body... I'm telling you, calm down, just Mm -hmm. calm down. Obviously, that would be totally useless. And the vet would say, the terror is in me. 
I cannot get rid of it. I know perfectly well that this is a safe place, but I don't feel it. Because the feeling, that is to say the memory of being strafed or being shot or seeing your friend shot, that memory is in the entire body. And now we know, of course, that it's in brain centers like the hippocampus, but it's also in adrenal centers. It's also in neuromuscular centers. So it's coded throughout the body. So the things that rise up in meditation are coded through the whole body, which is why we believe a meditation that sweeps up your whole body is more profound than one that is merely using fluid patterns. So let's take a long break (laughs) and reconvene in our next life. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariati, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content, and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariati.org. That is www.pariati.org. For more information on Vipassana meditation, including a schedule of courses taught throughout the world, please go to www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org.